I have a little story to tell you. I guess it's a story that turns an inside joke into an outside one, if there is such a thing. But so be it. I had a brother come to me once, whom I'd have to say I'd never met before. Evidently, he had listened to me preach once, so he knew my face and name. He admitted he couldn't recall what I had preached on, but he did recall one thing. He said, you were no Alistair Begg, and if you don't know who that is, suffice to say he's a gifted preacher. I'm apparently no Alistair Begg in this man's assessment. That's okay, I told him. I'm not trying to be Alistair Begg. But what I did point out to him was that he had highlighted one of the dangers in our day. We have so many great preachers available to listen to these days that it's tempting to compare and contrast. With COVID and all that time we were worshiping from home via the live stream, who knows whom we were watching. If you weren't too eager to listen to the minister on your home pulpit, then it was easy to tune in somewhere else. So what does this have to do with Lord's Day 31? The key of the kingdom isn't the preacher, but rather the preaching of the gospel. True, not every preacher of the gospel has the same gifts and they should do their best to communicate the gospel clearly in all its glorious truth. But even if the preaching comes in a less glamorous or gifted package, it is still the preaching of the gospel, and that's the key. The Apostle Paul compares this preaching, not the preacher, to fragrance. The fragrance of the knowledge of God. A preacher may have beautiful feet, says Isaiah, but he's still just a jar of clay, says Paul. But in that jar of clay is a treasure, a treasure that has a fragrance. This afternoon we will consider the question, how do you smell the fragrance of the word preached? And we'll look at the aroma, the reaction, and the significance. First then, the aroma. Fragrance. Aroma. That obviously comes to us from 2 Corinthians 2. There we read, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. Imagine a victory parade. The king leads that parade. A sign of his victory is prisoners he's captured, bound and chained. Enemy soldiers or citizens of the possessed territory they are now servants of the king. The Apostle Paul describes himself in that way. He's being led in his triumphal procession, a servant of the king. The king has gained the victory, and in this case, it's God in Christ over sin and death, over Satan and all his hosts, and he's acquired slaves as a result. The slaves are in this victory parade and Paul is among them. In Rome, such victory parades often headed for the temple of Jupiter where they would celebrate. They'd celebrate with sacrifices and offerings. These celebrations would then leave a smell, 
the smell of roasting meat and burning incense. It was all part of the triumphal procession. As they head through the city among the streets and then gathered in the court of the temple, this aroma surrounded the servants of the king. And that, Paul is saying, is what happens when he and others as servants of Christ are speaking in Christ's name. We are not peddlers of God's word, he says in what we read. He's not selling in the marketplace just to make money for himself. No, he's speaking in Christ, sincerely commissioned by God. In chapter 4 of what we read, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Not a peddler preaching himself, but preaching Christ. And that's like a fragrance, an aroma, a smell that spreads everywhere he goes. That's what Christ commissioned him for, says our Heidelberg Catechism, according to the command of Christ. This isn't optional. Christ is king, and in his, in his triumphal procession, he has servants who will spread the aroma of Christ. And that is, and what is that aroma? What exactly does Paul preach? This is again how our catechism summarizes it. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed publicly, testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits. That fits with what Paul says elsewhere in his letters, right? About what he preaches. What we heard last week. I preach Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Is that kind of simplistic? Can we really narrow it down to that? Is that really the aroma of Christ? What about if you're studying Genesis 6 and following about Noah? Or you're in the book of Judges learning about Gideon and Samson? Or the Psalms written by David? Jesus says to his listeners in John 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. They bear witness to Jesus. Whether you're in Genesis or Judges or Jonah, they all point to Christ because all history centers on him. In Galatians 4 we read, But the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his Son. The fullness of time. The scriptures point to Christ. All of time points to Christ. And so that's what we preach. Christ. To preach Christ crucified doesn't mean that you ignore his birth, his resurrection, his ascension. Without his resurrection, his death would have accomplished nothing. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We're wasting our breath. But because Christ rose from the dead, Christ crucified accomplished everything. 
His resurrection added the emphatic period, the exclamation mark, the amen to what he said on the cross. It is finished. Preachers of the word, servants of Jesus Christ, they spread the aroma of Christ's finished work on the cross. The gospel of done. It's done. All done. God forgives sin for the sake of Christ's merits. Jesus came, bled, and died to take away our sin. That's what needs to be heard every week in a nutshell. Oh, that's going to come out differently every time, depending on the text of Scripture. But as one children's Bible puts it, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. The Bible is in a book of rules. We don't need moralistic, legalistic messages. Yes, we go through the Ten Commandments almost every year, but not as a way of salvation, but rather as a way of thankfulness. Thankfulness for Christ, comforted in Christ, that even though we can't keep the law perfectly, he has done so already in our place. We're also not here to listen to a how-to message, 12 steps to a happy, successful Christian life. That would be about as successful in the end as a message on how the leopard can change his spots. He can't, can he? In fact, Jeremiah uses that to underline the deep effect of our sin. A leopard can't change his spots, can he, boys and girls? What's he going to do? Rub himself hard against a tree to scrape them off? Find some soap and wash himself thoroughly in the river? You laugh at the idea. A leopard can't change his spots. Neither can sinner his ways. We despair if all we have ever heard is a how-to to the Christian life message. The Bible is also not a book of heroes. Oh, we can talk about some of the faith heroes in Hebrews 11, but have you thought about the list? Noah, drunken Noah who lay naked in his tent. Abraham, distrusting Abraham who had to say that Sarah was his sister because he was afraid for his life. Sarah, laughing Sarah, who wouldn't believe that she'd have a son in her old age. Jacob, deceiving Jacob, who tricked his blind father, Isaac, into believing he was Esau. And we could go on. If Samson wasn't included there, we read about his life, we'd read about his life in Judges with serious questions, wouldn't we? Oh, we can learn from these saints. 
They can serve as examples in some way of how the Spirit works in sinful people. But then it's not about them as heroes, but about God who works in them by His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. You see, beloved, the key of the preaching is the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of the good news that God in grace sent his only beloved son to die for our sins, even while we were his enemies. It's the preaching of the gospel that the son came willingly, taking our sinful human flesh to obey the law of God perfectly and to die in our place, our substitute. It's the message of reconciliation, which we read in 2 Corinthians 5. That is, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's the message of the scriptures alone, of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God alone the glory. That's the message we need. Imagine that you've gone for a long walk, maybe a long, steep climb, and you've come to the top, exhausted. Exhausted, thirsty, and hungry. You're bone-weary, and so you collapse in a heap. Then you don't need someone to come up to you and explain how you might keep walking, or how to move your arms and legs to get back on your feet. You don't need someone to point out to you how others have managed to climb quite fine, men and women of better physical strength. No, just give me some food and drink and rest. That's what you and I need in our weakness as we walk the narrow path, don't we? No instructions first on how to walk, but nourishment, spiritual food in the living waters and bread of life. Let me see Jesus, we tell the preacher each week, weary from our battle against sin. Jesus, who came to save me from sin and from the punishment I deserve because of my sin. Yes, there is that other side of the coin too, isn't there, brothers and sisters? That is the part of the aroma of Christ too, as Paul puts it. We are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Because as much as the gospel of Christ crucified preaches grace and mercy, it also testifies to his justice and wrath. Why else was Jesus crucified? Like we heard last week, it was because the wrath of God against sin is so great that he couldn't leave it unpunished. God's wrath against sin is real. It's part of the message. That comes, as the Catechism summarizes, when it is proclaimed to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. Jesus died to save his people from the gates of hell. But that does mean there is a hell to which all are bound who are not in Christ. That means the aroma of Christ comes with a warning too. It comes with the curses and threats of the covenant. It declares the dire dangers of life outside of Christ. 
The gospel of grace isn't cheap, even if it's free. Does that make sense? Free grace came at a high cost, the blood of Christ. It's not a grace so that everyone is saved. That cheapens this grace. It's a grace to those who believe, who smell the aroma of Christ and react in faith. And that's our second point, the reaction. Notice the different ways the Catechism expresses the reaction to the message. The kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merit. As often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. As long as they do not repent. As long as they do not change and turn from their sin. That suggests the default setting, right? Your phone or tablet or computer gives you an option to do a factory reset. Back to those default settings. Or when you're setting things up, you can go with a default setting or customize, right? We also have a default setting. Baptism signifies it. We and our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore by nature children of wrath, so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. Yes, the wrath of God... And the eternal condemnation rests on us as long as we do not repent. We are not born neutral. We are not left with a choice of two options. To be in Christ or outside of Christ. By nature, we are outside of Christ. Children of wrath. That's the default setting. As long as we do not repent, so long as there is no reaction in faith... We just stay where we already are, dead in sin. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Then the gospel is veiled, says Paul, in what we read in 2 Corinthians 4. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The reaction then is nothing. It's unbelief, hardness, stubbornness, no desire to change and live a new life in Christ. And on them, the wrath of God remains. That's no trivial thing. That's horrid. That they hear the word, the gospel of life in Christ alone refuse to repent and are left with the wrath of God and eternal condemnation hanging over them as long as they do not repent. We must be born again, says the form of baptism. We have to react in faith to the gospel that is preached. As often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel, 
Not as long as they, but as often as they. That suggests a slightly different thing, doesn't it? As long as they by true faith could mean just do it once. A one and done deal. When we read as often as they, there's something continuous about that, isn't there? The gospel of forgiveness in Christ is preached every week again. From time to time, it's confirmed in the sign and seal of baptism. The aroma of Christ spreads through the world that way, a fragrance from death to death, but also from life to life. Then every time we hear that gospel, we are called to react in true faith. We are ambassadors for Christ, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is speaking for himself and his fellow apostles as preachers of the gospel message. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. There's passion and conviction in those words. It's no trivial thing. In his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says twice that he did his ministry among them with tears. Be alert, remembering that three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You can hear his tears in Corinthians too. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Turn from your sinful ways leading to hell and cling to Christ crucified as the way, the truth, the life, as the only one through whom we come to the Father. Yes, says the Catechism, accept him in true faith. True faith. That reminds us of Lord's Day 7, question answer 21. What is true faith? It is a sure knowledge and a firm confidence, a sure knowledge that all of God's word is true, and a firm confidence that all that the word promises is for me. It's our head and our heart, if you will. That means we receive the whole meal, the food that's easy to swallow and the food that's hard to swallow. What a smell is the aroma of Christ. I love the smell of food being prepared, some delicious meat on the barbecue. Even as you can hear the steak sizzling on the barbecue, you can smell it and your mouth starts to water. Maybe yours is now just thinking about it. Or if you come inside, you can tell there's something in the oven or on the stove. Kids too. They come inside, their eyes light up, and they say, Mom, what's for supper? Smells good. Until, of course, they find out what's actually giving off the smell, right? Maybe sometimes the whole menu doesn't sound so appetizing. Yes, the gospel of life in Christ, of being a new creation in Christ, is an aroma. One that ought to draw us in. But then we might find out that there are some things that are going to be hard to swallow. Because pruning hurts. Refining hurts. 
Molding and shaping through pressing hands hurts. Cutting your eye out or your hand off hurts. Accepting the gospel by true faith will bring suffering, struggle, and sorrow. But, brothers and sisters, all for good, all for growth, all for glory. And accepting the gospel of true faith is going to change our life. For what we proclaim, as we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ as the one who has gained the victory, who has bought us as his possession, who ransomed us, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. The one before whom we now bow, the one before whom we now serve. We are servants of the King in a triumphal procession. We follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we dedicate our life to him, in our service to him, in our thoughts, words, and actions. King Jesus is on the throne in our hearts too. He unseats especially me from my own throne. Too often we want life to go our own way, to unfold according to our own design, to be able to follow our own desires. How often are the frustrations and failures in your life a result of having King me on the throne rather than King Jesus? But when the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in Christ is preached, and I accept that in true faith, I am unseated, and Christ takes his rightful place. When we have Christ in his rightful place, then we will come to understand and appreciate more fully the work of God in us and for us. And that's briefly our last point, the significance. Question and answer 84 ends with, According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and the life to come. We could say, through this preaching of the gospel, God begins to make a separation both in this life and in the life to come. Yes, God makes the separation. When you, by true faith, accept the promises of the gospel, this is not something you can claim as your own doing. No, instead, listen to what we read. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown in our hearts to give the light. Praise be to God. It is he who allows us to see the, his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And again in chapter 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And again, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Yes, our default setting is being conceived and born in sin, subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation. 
As long as we do not repent, God's wrath and eternal condemnation remain on us. It's our own fault. But will we take credit when we come to faith? Can the dead come to life on their own? Does a baby desire to be born himself the first time? No. The dead aren't raised unless God raises them. And we aren't born again unless God works mightily by his spirit. It's that tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God reconciles the world to himself. And yet Paul says, be reconciled to God. It's why the church father Augustine would say, and I'm paraphrasing him, work in me what you want for me. It's God who judges in this life and the next. So, beloved, here we sit under the preaching of the gospel. Here we listen to the message of reconciliation. And that message comes with pleading. We implore you, be reconciled to God. You smell the fragrance of the word preached. What an aroma. The aroma of Christ. Do you know, asked Paul, that the kindness of God should lead to repentance? How do you react to that fragrance of Christ? Will you give all the glory to God in Christ when you see the glory in the face of Jesus Christ shining in the word preached? Amen.